This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. For decades, Palestinians have suffered injustice and oppression at the hands of the violent Israel Zionist regime, backed by the United States government. There have been many attempts to resolve this conflict peacefully, but negotiations have always fallen short. So the question is can there be peace and justice? In Palestine. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Peter Slazak. He's an honorary associate professor in philosophy at the University of New South Wales. He's also an executive member of the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peter. How are you? Thank you very much indeed. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I want to start with this question. Um, because there may, be, there may be people who are using this as their entry point into understanding this topic, right? Dr. Peter, what lies at the heart of the Israel-Palestinian conflict? That's a good question. Uh, currently, the heart of it is the uh, Israeli occupation of Palestine. It's uh, in a military occupation in the West Bank. It's conducting an illegal blockade and a siege of Gaza. And it's expanding its uh, settlements, illegal settlements in the West Bank, so that what would have been the Palestinian state is disappearing. And the prospects for a Palestinian state, which were um, argued for and it was pretended to be uh, on, the, on the cards as a prospect, is now disappearing. So that's the heart of it, that uh, what might have been a Palestinian state is now looking very uh, unlikely. Talk to me about the injustices and the oppression faced on a day-to-day -day basis by the people of Palestine. Well, I have to say, of course, it didn't begin recently. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I'm giving talks where I point out that the history of the Palestine uh, conflict and the crisis began in 1917. And it was the intention then very clearly um, of the Zionists to take over all of historic Palestine. That's not admitted too often, especially by the proponents of Israel and the Zionists who pretended for many years that there was always some prospect for a two-state solution. The reality is it was never intended. It's not a, uh, um, uh, difficult to see if you read the quotes. They were much more honest, in fact, the earlier leaders of the Zionist movement and right. the leaders of the State of Israel. They were actually very explicit. They've kind of disguised that in the meantime where they pretended that they were in favour of a two-state solution. Many people don't even know that um, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, the Likud party, who's coming back into power, it's explicit in its charge that there will be no Palestinian state between the River Jordan and the sea. So the whole idea that there was any real serious intention to have a Palestinian state was a kind of fraud. But more directly, you asked about the um, extent of the oppression. It's been recently the case that uh, three international human rights organizations have declared Palestine, uh, Israel, I'm sorry, a, um, an apartheid state. Right. Included among those, of course, was uh, Amnesty International, the most prestigious human rights groups, uh, Human Rights Watch, and not least, Israel's own B'Tselem human rights organization. They described the uh, Israeli regime as a regime of Jewish supremacy. Very strong words. But it has to be pointed out, before I go into some perhaps of the details, it's in a way a bit misleading even to say that it's apartheid because the state of Israel itself, contrary to all of the protestations of its defenders, Israel itself proper, so to speak, behind the 1948, they call it Palestine 48, 
That's an apartheid state. There are 50 or 60 laws on the books set out by the human rights organization, Adala in Haifa, that are discriminating. And in fact, Israel declared itself the nation state of the Jewish people in 2018 as a kind of a constitutional law. So that's no doubt. But the important point is the West Bank is worse than apartheid. Right. It's a military occupation, which is brutal. There are three areas, but in fact, Israel controls everything. It goes indiscriminately into the Palestinian Authority-controlled areas, shoots people, um, unarmed civilians. So that's a brutal military occupation. They're demolishing houses. They're they're, um, they're pushing people off their, their land. And Gaza is even worse still. So the idea that there's apartheid is a little bit sort of whitewashing the realities. Gaza is the most savage, brutal uh, uh, um, uh, siege and blockade. Uh, The the water is undrinkable. Um, The electricity is hardly on uh, for a few hours. Um, Unemployment is huge. So it's a major, major uh, human rights violation. It's illegal against international law and the world does nothing. I mean, the fact is that this blockade is a crime. And uh, it's not surprising that, in fact, the surprising thing is the Palestinians don't react more uh, than than they do, because when they do make some protest, there's some outrage about how terrible they are, but uh, they are suffering under uh, immense cruelty. People often paint the Israel-Palestinian conflict, or should I say the violent oppression by Zionists onto Palestinian people. People often paint it as something that is purely racial or religious in nature. But when we actually look at regional powers involved, um, Middle Eastern countries like Saudi and Egypt also play a role in the oppression of Palestinians. Would you say that this is more about capitalist and imperialist powers trying to maintain it, maintain the status quo? Well, in a way, that's right. I mean, it's certainly not about religion. Uh, people, some of even these more informed, intelligent, uh, educated authors um, would like to present the Middle East conflict in particular and Israel-Palestine as a conflict of fundamentalist religion. It's not at all. In fact, before the founding of the State of Israel, the Palestinians, the Jews and the, the, the Muslims, they got on fine. Uh, people who lived through that will tell you how they were neighbours and lived well together. It's certainly not about religion. Firstly, a, a significant proportion of the Palestinians are not Muslims, they're Christians. Bethlehem is suffering uh, as a Christian centre under the same occupation. No, the reality is it's about land. It's about uh, uh, the ambitions of the Zionists to take over the land of the, the, the ancestral home of the Palestinians. And that's a struggle for, for rights and, and autonomy and, and uh, self-determination. And so that has nothing to do with religion. Uh, now, of course, you mentioned the big powers. From the beginning, as I keep mentioning, the, the British, I mean, first it was the Ottomans and the, the Zionists then appealed to the British. It's an extraordinary story that the British basically betrayed the Arabs at the time. Sharif uh, Hussein of Mecca was lied to about the fact that the British, in return for rising up to overthrow the Arab revolt against the Ottomans, they were uh, promised to Sharif Hussein the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. They lied. uh, The British lied to him. They uh, gave Palestine to the European Jews with the Balfour Declaration. That's important to mention because that's been the ongoing problem. And in fact, it's shocking and, and, and surprising. The explicit contempt with which Balfour spoke of the people who lived there, the Arabs who owned and lived in that land, and how they simply dismissed their rights and and their 
entitlement to, to their own land. So that was the beginning, but that's the same story ever since. Right. And now, of course, uh, uh, the United States is the power which holds the, 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 the entire uh, regime really uh, at, at ransom in a way. I mean, $3.8 billion a year to the state of Israel uh, in, in the United States. Uh, um, uh, the, the power is enormous in, in influencing the government, the Israel lobby. And in the United Nations, the Security Council, America has a veto over every resolution that is in favor of the human rights and self-determination of the Palestinians. So it's a very grim... And I have to say, the Arab states have been not supporting Palestine. Right. So, you know... You mentioned the United States, right? And and over the past few decades, um, especially since um, Israel and Palestinians, uh, Palestine started negotiating with the US involved, there have been many attempts, Dr. Peter, to so-called resolve this conflict. And I already see you shaking your head, right? Why, Dr. Peter, why have all these so-called attempts at peace failed? Because they've never been genuine. Look, it's a pretty simple story, but it's been disguised as always. To put it simply, the peace process has been a fraud. It's been uh, managed by the United States as the so-called independent broker. But of course, the famous American-Palestinian scholar at Columbia University, Rashid Khalidi, wrote a book which sums it up. They weren't brokers of a peace negotiation. They were brokers of deceit. That's his title. And the fact is that it was engineered always to fail. Um, uh, the, the, to go back, for example, to the most significant, perhaps, uh, so-called peace process, the Oslo uh, in 1993, where there was the famous photograph of, of Yasser Arafat shaking the hands with uh, Isaac Rabin. That was the big tragedy that led to the current mess because, in fact, to quote Edward Said, the great Palestinian scholar, actually also from Columbia University, right. where, I, where I had been a student, um, he wrote immediately afterwards, like within days, he, he had a, an essay called the, the Morning After, and he said this was a betrayal. The Palestinians and Arafat had given away what the uh, Israelis had already acknowledged and conceded, and suddenly with the West Bank and, and, and so on, which was was agreed to have been Palestinian land, uh, a compromise, really, a historic compromise where they settled for, you know, 28% of historic Palestine. He gave away the rights to that, and it now became, instead of uh, Palestinian land, it became disputed. So now, and there's a whole list of things which, which Edward Said pointed to. And if you look at now the map, such as it is of the West Bank, it's this patchwork of uh, bantustans, of enclaves. Right. And, and uh, the whole of the, the, the eastern area, the, the uh, Jordan Valley, is under complete Israeli control. There are joint control. But even Ramallah and the main centers of Palestinian control, the Israeli army comes in and out freely. So the idea that there's a viable state there is, is really gone. And this is a result of Oslo. These are the, the arrangements which were signed off by Arafat. So, so the peace process has always been a fraud. You can read about, for example, Camp David and several of these so-called peace negotiations. Insiders have often written about it. There's one or two. It, it was uh, deliberately uh, intended right. to fail. So that's because partly the Americans were running it. <laughs> and uh, it's a very sad story. Because the, the the rhetoric in the West is always, and I have to say, it's so uncritically accepted that the rejectionist side was always the Palestinians. This is a, a, a terrible lie. The fact is that Yasser Arafat in, 1990, in 1988 and, and other occasions had accepted the existence of the state of Israel, which is a, a significant compromise, uh, really, uh, under the circumstances where they now have taken 
all of historical Palestine. Right. And so the rejectionist has never been the Palestinians, but this requires a little bit of homework to check the actual record as opposed to the public rhetoric and the propaganda, which we get in the mainstream, especially in the West, in Australia and America. The truth is not hard to find, but we're, we're not helped by the, the way in which the propaganda machinery works. For those who may not understand, Dr. Peter, why is the United States in support of Israel when many parts of the world, um, apart from US and its allies, um, many, part of, many parts of the world understand that Palestinians are the victims here, including countries like Malaysia? Yes, it's a good question. Look, there are other uh, complex reasons. Mm -hmm. The strategic calculation of, of America has to do with Israel's role in, 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 in its military, uh, uh, military uh, arms industry and its uh, security industry. It manufactures all sorts of security um, uh, technologies which are spread around the world. Um, I mean, America gives $3.8 billion in, 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 in aid. And it's like, like this uh, uh, aircraft carrier that's moored in the Middle East. So it has some kind of military strategic importance um, in the Middle East. So America makes some calculation that this has been in its interest. That may change. The more optimistic accounts are that in the end, America may decide that this is more of a liability. And that's our hope that it might decide that this is not helping for other reasons. The pressure uh, for activists around the world has to be on America because that's, I think, the key. They hold the key to, to the, the ongoing uh, uh, crisis. It's not going to come out of Israel, I have to say. Right. Ab absolutely. And, and that's, you know, ties back into something you brought up earlier where you said that, you know, look at the amount of international laws um, that are being violated here, right, um, in this region. Um, you know, Israel, what they're doing um, to Palestinians is unacceptable. Like a lot of people know this, but yet, like you said, wh why is the world not doing anything about it? And I'm wondering, is the reason why the world is not doing anything about it, um, besides what they can do, puts a little bit of pressure here and there and things like that is because the US is involved and they are such a global superpower with unlimited powers to sanction countries to do whatever it is. They have such a hold on the global capitalist economy that it just becomes unviable for other countries to push back against them. Yeah, when you describe the world, of course, you have to distinguish, I think, governments from the people mm -hmm. because many places around the world, the people understand and are supportive. Absolutely. And uh, governments act in badly. I just saw a speech by I think it's an Irish politician. I think the head of the European Union must have been in Ireland. This very passionate, very eloquent parliamentarian spoke so strongly about how inconsistent, for example, the powers are about Russia and its invasion of the Ukraine, where right. we condemn it and we regard the Ukrainians as, as, as heroes and freedom fighters. But when Israel invades and does terrible things, we regard the, the victims, the Palestinians, as the terrorists. So there's this asymmetry. And, and as in Ireland and elsewhere, the public did generally see it more clearly. And governments have their own interests in, 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 in collaborating with, with Israel and, and America. America will put pressure on governments. So there's that dynamic, which is difficult. I think that's what motivates activists around the world. And I have to say, there are grounds for seeing some hope, as always. There were cases like South Africa, like East Timor, 
and, and elsewhere where it didn't look like it would ever end. But in fact, I think it was the activists around the world who kept the issue alive and ultimately could, could make a difference. That's my view. Um, in Australia, of course, we were close to the East Timor case. It never looked like that occupation would end. I think it's fair to say that the activists around the world kept the issue going and made it more and more difficult for governments to maintain. And I think that's the only hope. On the show with me today is Dr. Peter Slazak, executive member of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. After the break, I ask him if there can be peace in Palestine. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Peter Slazak, executive member of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. And we're talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. So, Dr. Peter, you know, earlier you brought up that um, the U.S., approach, um, what they've been proposing for many years is this two-state solution to the conflict. Is this the right approach? That's a very contested question now, very complicated. There are very good people uh, who have been the strongest supporters of the Palestinians have now publicly and openly decided there's no hope for a two-state solution. That's one side of the story. And they're arguing now for good moral and political reasons that there should be one state where everybody has equal rights. Right. You can't argue with the vision of that as a decent uh, solution to the reality which has been created because the reality is there is only one state and it's controlled by Israel. You know, the irony of that is that when the Palestinians demonstrate around the world and there are marches, they chant, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, the Zionists and, and supporters of Israel get outraged that the Palestinians want to get rid of the state of Israel. But the reality is the reverse. Israel has got rid of Palestine. There is one state already. And the only question is the human rights of the Palestinians. But let me say, I mean, significant figures in Israel are now making, I mean, some of the the dissident voices supporting Palestine are arguing for the one state. Other significant figures are sceptical about the possibility of that, at least in the short term. And the reason for that, which has to be said, is that, look, inside Israel itself, 20% of the Israeli citizens are Palestinians and they don't have equal rights. As I mentioned before, the apartheid uh, is the case. So the 20% that they are stuck with, they don't get equal rights. It's very difficult, frankly, to imagine that now if they would accept all of the Palestinians between the Jordan and the ocean, they would suddenly give them equal rights. And this is not going to happen in the short term for psychological reasons. And it's also important to say... I know this because I'm Jewish and I know the Jewish community in Australia and, and the Israelis. They have the most awful racist prejudices against the Palestinians. The idea that they... Now, this has been an artificially manufactured uh, uh, prejudice and a racist uh, uh, attitude, but that can't disappear immediately. I mean, there's a sort of a genocidal attitude among many, right. many Israelis against the Palestinians. You can't simply erase that easily or quickly and say, now, we're all going to live happily together. I mean, I wish we could. My Palestinian friends have trouble seeing, because frankly, I see on the Palestinian side this desire just for coexistence, peaceful coexistence. Now, I think, now of course, there are crazy people on, on all sides. But, but, but the reality is, I think, the Palestinians have long clearly indicated, and, and every Palestinian I know, would settle for peaceful coexistence. It's not symmetrical. The Jews in the diaspora are also, their head is filled with propaganda about how the the, the Palestinians are all terrorists and are going to kill every Jew. So under those circumstances, if sadly, if, if I'm correct, 
It's not going to be possible suddenly to say, let's all have one state. It's not going to happen. Um, I travelled in, in, in the West Bank and there's a big sign always as you go into the West Bank in red with white letters in Arabic, in, in English and in Hebrew. This is dangerous. This is area A. You are in danger of your life. Well, I travel there openly as a Jew and it's very interesting the warm welcome I get. I can tell you interesting anecdotes about how warmly I'm received because I'm not coming in a military uniform. And I went to demonstrations there in a little village Bilain, and they were, most of them were Israeli, Israeli Jews on that day. So the attitude towards the Israelis and Jews is not as many people think that this is a dangerous place. That's the, the main, I think, obstacle to uh, making one state. I think in the longer term, if, if one could settle for some kind of coexistence of the two states and moving towards some sort of binational arrangement in the longer term, that would be the way to go. But to first to generate goodwill and some sort of coexistence, that's my sense. The other thing to say is that leading uh, scholars who I respect enormously, uh, Noam Chomsky and, and Norman Finkelstein, who are some right. of the most important commentators Absolutely. on this. Absolutely. They uh, say similar things that... Uh, one can't simply um, make the state of Israel disappear uh, because, I mean, like any state, it, I don't know if they have a right to exist exactly, but they exist and they, they uh, have an expectation. They can't so undo what's already been done. History, right. I mean, yeah. frankly, if you could rewrite this movie and go back to, and, and right. rerun the, the story, as I mentioned from the, from the Balfour Declaration, the state of Israel shouldn't have happened. I mean, that's my view. It, it was a, a crime and, and, and a deceit against the Arabs and there should have never been a state of Israel. But that's not an open question anymore. I have to say that in case because the rhetoric is, oh, you want to get rid of the state of Israel. The Zionists rely on this pretense that people want to push the Jews into the sea. This is constant. To this day, the Zionist leaders in Australia and elsewhere, they talk this way to put the fear into uh, the Jews. And sadly, it works. So, so we have to remove that psychological barrier, and apart from the practicalities. The other practicalities, the, the right of return, which which Palestinians have in international law, one can't take that away, but that's very complicated. And it's not realistic. Chomsky makes the point. You can't seriously push this as a, 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 an agenda uh, because it, it's not practically conceivable that they could all now come back. And, and how many would want to come back is not clear. So these are complicated questions. Right. So where are we right now? Is it not possible to imagine a, a, say, a state where it is democratic, it is secular, where Arabs, Jews, Palestinians, everyone, um, you know, come together, live alongside each other, you know, as they did at one point, before the British occupation and, and before all of that, right, is it not possible to imagine that for this region anymore? What is What are we hoping for then? Look, I think you're right. It's certainly possible to imagine it, and we must imagine it, but we have to think of how to get there. Right. And that's the hard part. And uh, I, I mean, it's hard to answer that question because it's not clear what steps we have to take. Look, I think one of the most important tools is international law. As you rightly asked before, it's not as though we don't have any means at our disposal. I mean, the, the wall that was created, the barrier, that takes nearly 10% of the West Bank. It was declared illegal by the International Court of Justice in 2004. Every settler was declared illegal. Why doesn't the world do something about it? These are perfectly clear examples of where the, 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 there's nothing controversial about this. There's now seven or 800,000 settlers now. It's growing all the time. Everyone is illegal under the Geneva Conventions. Well, the world could simply apply international law. Uh, there's nothing 
difficult about that, but your question points to the fact that there's no will and the people that have the power, but, but that seems to be the best approach. Certainly, one of the great developments has been that the Palestinians themselves have, have now stopped acts like the suicide bombing, which they never recovered from in the public eye. Of course, the bad public relations effect of that have been very significant because they are continually painted in a certain way. But now they're resorting to things like the boycott, divestment and sanctions, the BDS movement around the world. They're resorting to peaceful protest and, and legal means. This is something we should all support. And it seems to me that's the best hope where we're not asking for anything that's unreasonable. And uh, so I, I see that this is the best path towards some ultimate way in which coexistence could be seen to, to be possible, uh, the way that you describe it. But also, to repeat myself, I think that the, the, there has to be this, this uh, way of dealing with the psychological fears uh, on both sides and allaying concerns uh, that, that are preventing uh, seeing a reasonable solution. I think that's a very big obstacle. Absolutely. So, when, when, if I ask you the question, can there be peace in Palestine, what would your answer be and what exactly would that look like Realistically, it's the wrong question. The question okay. is: the question is, there has to be peace with justice, right? That's been a title yes. of a talk I've been using, because in a sense, um, there's skirmishes and violations and violence, but one can't just ask for peace because peace under a, an occupation is peace, but it's not justice, and that's the slogan which I think one has to understand. And it's the injustice which is rightly the concern that the Palestinians. Uh, are appealing for, as, as did all of these movements around the world in Northern Ireland or in South, uh, South Africa and, and in East Timor. So we have to hold before us the, the ambition to establish a just solution. And, and so uh, your question's a good one because we have to make that contrast. Right, absolutely. And, and so when we're talking about justice for Palestinians, how do we get there? And, and I'm, I'm asking because there are, it is not just a, a you know, conflict that is sort of um, exclusive to that region in that sense. Like we talked about throughout this discussion, we are talking about going up against the biggest superpower in the, in the globe and its allies. Um, are we talking about you know, pushing back hard against the U.S. Um, are, are we talking about, you know, uh, working class people, uh, you know, in an international proletariat revolution? What, what are we talking about here? And uh, does it require the people of the United States to start pushing back against um, neoliberals, against the far right and, and you know, have a, a more working class run government, a government that is anti-war? That's very ambitious to ask for a working-class government. <laughs> Let's not be so ambitious for the beginning. Right. Let's be a little bit more modest. But you're right. Look, I think one part of the answer to your question is that uh, the working classes or just the public generally have to be better informed. Right. And it's very hard to be well-informed. So social media are very helpful. Although there's a lot of rubbish on social media. So one has to be selective, and it's hard to know what to talk about. One factor which I could mention, I should perhaps say, there are signs of shift for this reason in America, where I think it's very important. The Jewish community in America are changing in ways that I think is very significant. The Jewish community in America have been very Zionist. I mean, since 1967, especially, where they've been very enthusiastic about the state of Israel. Um, but it's changing. And the reason was captured in a book titled by Norman Finkelstein many years ago now called um, They Know Too Much. American Jews are Democrat voters. And they're very progressive, as they say, on everything except Palestine. 
They were at the forefront, actually, of the civil rights movement for the the um, blacks, and they're educated and sophisticated. And now they are finding out, which they didn't know, and still perhaps don't know much, of how bad it is. Right. The objective facts. Now that's difficult for them because they're having trouble reconciling their progressive values with what they're finding out is the uncontroversial facts. That's an important shift, and there's one very significant uh, development there. One of the leading Zionist, liberal Zionist figures, who is a significant Jew and an academic and a commentator is Peter Barnard, and he caused this earthquake in American Jewish circles because he came out not that long ago and said he can no longer even support a Jewish state. Most people, most Jews and others pretend it's possible to have a Jewish democratic state, which is a contradiction in terms. You can't have a, a, a racist, uh, you know, exclusivist, uh, supremacist state, which is also democratic. This is the fiction which they right. try to propagate. But to his credit, I mean, I make a joke, although I'm a great admirer of Barnard, but I, I always say, what took you so long? I mean, he finally <laughs> came to this point. But no, look, I don't want to make uh, jokes at his expense because right. he's terrifically uh, uh, important and decent and a, a, a significant contributor to this issue. But that fact that he finally even got to the point where he can no longer defend that morally because he's been terrific on this. Well, that's showing what's changing in America because they're having to deal, and he's in dialogue, and, and, and talking to the Jewish communities is, is part of the secret because that's a constituency that needs to change. Now, they're not the only one. I mean, I've just recently been seeing some stuff about in America, it turns out that the fundamentalist Christian Zionists are a huge force with huge amounts of money. They've got their particular ideas about the end of the world, and it's a bit scary from my particular point of view. And, and, uh, but that's a significant force, and uh, they have views which I, I suppose I can say publicly. I think they're crazy but, um, <laughs> b- b- and dangerous. Right. I mean, in a way, they're kind of hoping for the end of the world to come uh, because they're all going to go to heaven. Well, God help us all. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, but these are real political forces. There are. And, and uh, it's a reality, certainly in America, where that's, that's one element. So, so uh, going back to your question, I think, as, as in the case of Timor and elsewhere, the media and, and others have to change on, on the ways they present these things. And then governments will have to follow, I think. But that's the tension. And, and, and as I say, the best examples I have are South Africa and East Timor, where we never thought that would end. But in the end, uh, things changed. And so for all the obstacles, which are very real, uh, one can see a path. And look, there's no alternative to doing what we do, because right. if you don't do anything, it's certainly not going to change. Absolutely. So uh, how far... I know these things are not predictable, of course, but let's say compared to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and and where we are today, are we seeing steps in the right direction? Are we getting closer to to this this uh, you know this this uh, this this ideal sort of uh, peaceful with justice and all of that like how far away are we from that and i ask this only because it seems like when we look away from this particular topic and just look at how superpowers are reacting to the world changing world today it seems like america has their hands full um, and it seems like a lot of other aspects where they had complete control over, they're starting to lose that control bit by bit. We're seeing more and more countries push back against the US um, for their sanctions against Cuba, for example. You know, things like that. We're starting to see more of that. Does that give you hope that we are getting 
closer or do you just choose to be pragmatic in, in what's the pragmatic response Look, if you have asked you know a few years before East Timor right. uh, you wouldn't have known it was close it was right. very close so it could happen tomorrow <laughs> so you, you, you can't really answer your question right. but I was going to say something that may be relevant in some ways like in East Timor things probably have to get a lot worse before they get better and, and one sign of that, I have to say, is the current regime in Israel. They have now appointed uh, as ministers in the coalition two people who somebody described, I think rightly, are like the Ku Klux Klan in, in America. These are fundamentalist, notorious, racist, uh, supremacist uh, uh, people who have the worst you know, attitudes towards the Palestinians. I have to say in some ways that's a good thing. And why? Because the mask is off. The, the attitudes... It's not new. I mean, it's just before you could pretend that maybe there was some semblance of normalcy, but, you know, it's a bit hard. But as I said before, if you don't really know enough of the history and what's going on there, you could pretend that this is sort of like... But now, it's not new, but this is now really in your face. And Jewish communities now have to deal with the fact that they've got leaders in the government that are outright, you know, racist uh, supremacists. And, and in fact, if you see Vox Pops, you know, they interview people in the street, the attitudes are just beyond comprehension, they're so bad. But now that may be bringing it closer because we're now facing the, the ugly reality of the attitudes across the country, but now at the heart of the government. In fact, even long before this, I have a list of quotes from some of the members of the, the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. These are genocidal, racist statements publicly. It's not hard to find them. Well, so now this is so publicly and I think that's a, a good thing in inverted column, a good thing in the sense that it's now you can't make excuses. And so I noticed the Jewish leaderships and others having to sort of make excuses for this. Right. And, but they're very lame. And that's a good thing. Yeah, the veneer has been lifted. That's it. That's I, right. I, and I'm wondering, you know, just to your point, um, has the the, the violent, um, the, the murder of high-profile Al Jazeera generally, Sharin Abu Akleh, has that you know, does that go to your point where it's this blatant, everybody knows, um, you can't hide these kind of things anymore. I mean, other journalists have been murdered, yeah. killed as well in in the region, but this was something very high profile. Look, it's a good point. There have been lots of those, mm -hmm. and, and America is not acting as, as vigorously as it might in the case of an American citizen as she was. Right. Uh, it's not the first case. There were others of these. But you're right. These are all adding to the outrage and the sense that this is an intolerable regime. Um, as you know, in that case, Israel tried to pretend that it was some excuses that, you know, they always make up lies. They did the investigations themselves and, and concluded and that they... Was, they there was some said. activism there and so it's all rubbish. Right. They make yep. it up. Mm -hmm. But they do always. They, they lie and the lies get exposed. Look, they've shot children dead for no reason. There's some notorious case where it doesn't have to be a prominent journalist. There was a case where the security cameras picked uh, uh, some snipers had shot two kids walking with their school bags on their back. These are all made public. But uh, to go back to our point, th not enough is made of these outrages right. uh, because of the, the dynamic of, on the one hand, the influence of the propaganda machinery of, of the Zionists. But, but worse still, the media outlets themselves are terrible. I mean, the New York Times is one of the best newspapers. Its record on this, if you look objectively at uh, analyses of this, it's, rubbish. it's terrible. Right. So they work in a frame where they really disguise these terrible realities or make excuses. And sadly, that has an effect, especially for people who don't want to hear the bad stuff or know how bad it is. So it's the same problem we've had in every political conflict, especially where America has been deeply involved, in Latin America and elsewhere. 
the media, the mainstream media, but again, as he said before, the social media helped to bring out, I mean, the terrible things going on now, the shooting of uh, uh, an unarmed Palestinian there. Again, I'm reading the ways in which the, the spin is being presented. He's a hero, according to the the government leaders. Now, you only have to watch the video to see it clearly, but they can still tell the story. Right. But this is delusional stuff. And I think increasingly people will have trouble swallowing this. So that's the hope. Absolutely. And before we wrap this conversation up, Dr. Peter, would you have a final message for us? Goodness. Uh, we have to keep <laughs> struggling. And, 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 uh, and I think more people should get involved. Look, there are lots of choices in where you put your energies and people make these choices. But uh, look, I think the best message is to get better informed. Most people act without sufficient information, and, and it's not easy. But I think the best message I can think of quickly off the cuff is to find out more, read more about it, and come to some clear understanding of the source of the problem. And, and uh, I mean, it's not quantum physics. It, it, it's, uh, you know, Chomsky always makes the remark that uh, <laughs> colleagues, academic colleagues, are always very angry because they ask him, what credentials have you got to talk about political science? And he says, none, because none are needed. You know, right. uh, this is not quantum physics. But look, that's perhaps overstating it. He, uh, you, I mean, you need to be informed. Yes. And so I think and reading uh, good sources and, and coming to terms with the, the realities. Uh, is, and it's, I always say, we have a big advantage on, on our side of the, the, the dispute. We have the truth and we have justice. And I think that's the, the secret. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Peter Slazak, Executive Member of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.